Well, thanks, Anthony, and it is great to be with you all, um, and it's great to be out of the heat of Phoenix, so praise be to God for Flagstaff, Arizona in the summer. Um, we are right now going to be in 2 Samuel, that's in the Old Testament, so more the left side of your Bible, 2 Samuel 6 and 7. If you're in this room and whenever somebody gets up, they mention the passage that they're going to be in, there's an incredible thing uh, that many publishers have done for us at the beginning of the Bible, there's a table of contents, and we all start somewhere. So don't feel stupid to look at the table of contents and look up 2 Samuel, which comes after 1 Samuel, and just find the page number. And then when you open it, you'll see chapters. And we're in chapter 6. They're typically highlighted in bold, chapters 6 and 7. We're in the midst of this series called We Want a King, where we've been looking at the life of Saul, one king of Israel, and the life of David. And if we were going to boil it all down, in a very real sense, when you contrast Saul and David, it's this reality in the scriptures that's communicating to us the difference between the typical way we as human beings do it and the divine. It's a contrast of the typical human and the divine. By the divine, I mean God. The typical way we as humans do it and the divine. Another way, if you follow through the scriptures, and this is highlighted a lot in the New Testament, the right side of your Bible, is a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. That's another way to say the typical human, the flesh, kind of what we just naturally gravitate to. That reality of how we get in our own ways, how we become the greatest barrier between us and God, the contrast of the flesh and the spirit. The theme of First and Second Samuel could be declared as what came out of this prophet named Samuel when he was looking at who God was laying his hands on to be the next king, who God was laying his hands on to be the next king. He's looking for the big, the tall, the mighty, the strong, and God says to Samuel, don't look at what typical human beings look at. For humans look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I'm certain many of you, even if you're in this room and you would not declare yourself to be a Christian or you would say I'm very new to this reality, may have heard this phrase before that God, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God wants what's real. And that's my prayer coming up here today for all of us. Anthony began to elude this, but I think the Bible teaches the genius is in the room. The power, you could say, is in the pews. It's not in the pulpit. It's not in the pastor. The power's in you all. So even as Anthony prays for me, I want to take a moment to pray for us together and for you all. Because this really is about what God is forming is a group of people, a type of people, to reflect who he is to the world. So let me pray for that, and then we're going to get into this passage. Father, my prayer right now is for every individual sitting in these seats and for who Redemption Flagstaff is together. I pray, Lord, this morning, this prayer that I love. God, I pray that you would comfort the afflicted. And God, my prayer is that your word would comfort the afflicted and afflict those of us who are too comfortable. I pray that you'd speak to us in a very real way today, God, because you love what's real. In Jesus' name we pray, 
Amen. You're going to hear that word a lot today of real. I'm not certain how many of you know, but right now there's a big new app amongst many younger individuals. How many of you guys know in this room, raise your hand if you've heard about the app called Be Real? Okay, a bunch of you have. This app I get a kick out of, it basically presents a time that goes out at the same time to everybody. If you are on the app, be real. The same time, when it hits, it'll say it's time to be real. You open it up and you take a picture. And the picture goes, you take a picture. Like if I took it right now, it would show this group because I wouldn't have it on wide angle. So it would take the center section of the room. I'd take a picture. If it said be real right now, you guys could all wave. And then it would show my face. And it seems like what it's attempting to do is, hey, get away from all the selfie posing. You know, you know, right now, all the times they'll be like, I'm going to go to that place because that's a great place to get pictures. And we present these realities, a lot of us begin to present these realities online that aren't real. So this app came along and said, hey, just be real. When the moment comes, take the picture that's right in front of your face. It's going to show what's in front of you and it's going to show you be real. I think God prefers be real photos to contrived, lacking authenticity, pre-posed photos. Because God loves what's real. This passage we're in today presents a lot of emotional challenges and it presents a lot of intellectual challenges. There's this moment in this passage where this guy Uzzah gets killed and God's anger is burned against him because he seems to have worshipped falsely or just seemed to do something. And you'll see in a minute what it is. And it presents all of these emotional challenges in me and all these intellectual challenges like, God, what are you? But at the core level, here's what I want you to understand. God wants the real. And he exposes the fraud. God deeply desires the truth and wants the lies exposed. God deeply desires authenticity and wants to expose the inauthentic. God loves the real because the real is what sets us free. God loves the truth Because the truth sets us free. And God is in love with liberation. God is in love with salvation. God at his core is a liberator and liberation necessitates the truth. Lies in prison, the truth sets us free. God loves the real. I don't know how many of you guys have been online and seen last March, March of this year, the NBA was going on. I don't know how many of you are sports fans, and if you're sports fans, some prefer Major League Baseball, some prefer the NFL right now. My son loves the NFL, wants to go watch games, would probably rather be watching games than listening to me right now, and he's sitting right there. Um, But the NBA is going on in March, and a lot of the NBA fan experience, there's people hired in sports to do fan experience. They'll begin to do crazy things. Like the kiss cam was invented a long time ago. Well, in Portland, they decided to have this moment where they have a machine that's a diamond revealer. 
A lot of the women in the room are like, diamonds. I like diamonds, right? But this is the exposer, if you will. And they allow their mascot to walk around with a machine, a tool that goes up to women's rings and finds out if the diamond is real. There's a bunch of guys that are like, let me tell you where we're not going to, a Portland Trailblazers game. <laughs> so there's this video of the mascot coming down and he goes to kind of courtside seats and he walks up to a woman and the woman's sitting there and you can see the guy is like, oh good Lord Jesus, if you're the savior, save me now. I mean, you can just see his face is like, oh my God. And they go right on it and do it, do, do, do. And the mascot goes like this, do, do, do. And he looks at it and turns and it's fake. And the woman is furious. Look it up. If you're like, I want to see this, like look it up on YouTube. You can do it right now. I don't even care. She literally takes it. And who knows if the whole thing's contrived. She takes it, throws it like right at his chest, gets up and begins to walk away. And he like, it bounces off of him and he's like looking at it. Well, then if you pause the screen, there's this man holding a beer. She walks by him and he's just laughing <laughs> profusely, which is part of the what reason the woman's so frustrated is it's so shameful in this large environment to have it exposed. But if you dig down even deeper, what she may be feeling that she hasn't even brought to her mind to understand why right now is marriages in real relationship can't be founded on lies. That's what we come to in chapter six. There's this incredible scene that starts this whole thing out. David has been coronated as king and all these people came around in chapter five and they coronated, they established him as the new king of Israel. And David now brings together all of these able young men of Israel. There's 30,000. Verse two says, he and all of his men went to Bela and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. So the ark of God is the presence of God. It had been housed in a tabernacle and now had been taken away by the enemies and moved away and he's now ready to grab it, take the ark of God back and this is the essence of worship. The ark of God has been the center point in the life of Israel and just to be very clear, if some of you know the Bible, at this point yet a temple has not been built. So the way in which God has traveled with the people, the nation of Israel, is in a tent. They were a mobile, nomadic people that moved. And this tent moved along with them because what made Israel Israel from the very beginning of the Exodus, remember the Exodus, crossing the Red Sea, what made Israel Israel is God. God established Israel from Abraham before Egypt, before the Exodus. God established this nation. And this nation was only who they could be and who ultimately God intended them to be based upon one reality, his, God's presence. So the ark was built and there were these angels, these cherubim that came over the ark and inside of it was the presence of God. So it's spoken here as this ark of God, and it says, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim of the ark. Now many people say the name of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Now hosts means the host of angelic realm. So Eugene Peterson talks about this, the name, the God of angel armies. 
Now, Israel's been fighting. They've been delivered. They've been liberated. But because of the presence of God, a God who is the God of angel armies, there's these realities in the Bible where God decides to just kind of pull back this film that blinds us to the realities that are going on all the time. So there's this scene of the chariots of fire in the Bible where God goes, you know, we're going to pull back this film. And there are these angel armies surrounding all over the place. And this is what Israel believed, that there is a God who spoke the world into existence. That same God upholds the whole world. That includes your hair and the nose that's on your face, your knees being above your feet, and it upholds even buildings, that the God who spoke the world into existence sustains the world by the word of his power. Israel believed this, and this God's presence, manifest presence, went with Israel. And David's like, now we're going to take this ark back. But what gets exposed up front is what happens here is there's all these people dancing. There's all these people worshiping. They're saying, you know, we're here for God. And they begin to take the ark of God out, but they don't do it God's way. In redemption, we have a value that we call doing the Lord's work the Lord's way. And the reason we establish that is there's all kinds of people inside churches that get paid to do what we call ministry who basically think the ends justify the means. If we're doing God's work, we can do it in any real way we want. We can humanly look for better efficiencies. We can find faster ways to do it. We can find what we believe are more powerful ways to do it. And then over and over and over again, you see the people that think the ends justify the means. And what gets exposed is so many points of their lives are fraud. It's fake that in the end, we believed something would bring about more power than God's presence, that we could do God's work, but we don't really have to do it God's way. That's exactly what's happening in this. So they have a cart. The reality is what they were taught about the Ark of the Covenant is it shouldn't be called, put on a cart. It shouldn't be made more efficient. It was actually the load of it was to be carried by those who carried it on poles, and you have all these questions. I'm not saying this is right, but it seems like God's trying to show the people there's a weight to God. There's a weight to God. There's a reality of I could walk faster without the presence of God, but when I walk with God, it shows human weakness. But they were like, you know what? We're going to show human power. We'll put it on a cart and we'll walk it and the oxen will walk in front of us and there's more efficient, there's faster ways to do it, it's better. But they had forgot all of this, that in the end, what God is really exposing is the fraud of it all. What's real? So at the moment, these oxen get a little shaky, they move and the Ark of the Covenant begins to fall off the cart and God had said, don't do this cavalierly, don't just touch the Ark of the Covenant. And this man Uzzah touches the Ark of the Covenant, and God gets, pardon me if this bothers you, ticked off, peed off, right, in the midst of this, and he dies. Uzzah, the man who touched the Ark, dies. Now, this is the moment where I get emotionally and intellectually disturbed. Like, when anything in my house is teetering and about to fall off, I just naturally try to catch it. 
and God just kills the guy? So God's angry, the passage says. If you look in verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Now, that's really an interesting word, irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David's angry. So God's angry at the irreverence. I would say God's angry ultimately at the lack of realness to their worship. And because this moment happens, David gets angry. Now let's just stop for a minute and tell me, tell me the Bible isn't relevant. Have you ever deep down just been furious at God? Just for real frustrated. God didn't do something you wanted him to do or something happened in your life that you didn't want to happen and you were furious with God. You can relate to David at this point. Why do you think David's ultimately angry? Because David's going, God, if you're God, I know you could have done something about this. Let me just pause you for a moment and say this. Many of us in our anger with God begin to humanly, as those emotions rise up and we begin to go, now, now I have mental problems with God. All these things make me question God and it contributes even more to deeper anger that you have with God. Stop for a minute and understand this. The reason you're angry with God is because you know deep down he could have done something different. Because if he's God, he's powerful. That the very nature of your anger with God there are people who are like atheists who talk about being angry with God, which feels so weird. Like you don't even believe in God and you're angry at him. But there's a human inclination to get angry at events, to get angry at something. And in your anger, you're proving you actually believe God's God. Because the reason you're angry is you're going, you could have done it different. There's a pastor named Tim Keller that opened my eyes to this reality that if we have a God who's big enough to be angry about, Big enough to be angry about, meaning we know he could have done something different. If you have a God that's big enough to be angry at, you have a God who's big enough to do things that surpass your mental or emotional comprehension of what it is. And a God who can use what we think is bad to work his good. Now, the reality underneath it still asks the question of why, and I think in all of my heart... The why of this moment is God was exposing the fraud of it all. That in the end, all of this dance, all of this movement wasn't actually about the presence of God. It was about what these human beings ultimately wanted. David gets terrified of God that day, it says in verse 9. And he basically goes, Kind of like, a, I'm going to take my ball and go home moment. Like, I'm just going to take this ark. I'm scared to death. I'm pissed at you, God. And I'm going to put it in this guy, Obed-Edom's house, and just go, you take it. I want nothing to do with you. And he walks away. Now, in this section of passages, there's all this stuff we need to come back to and begin to realize. The very beginning was a crowd, 30,000 men, only men, which means there's a lot more people there that were there for David's coronation that are now there, and everybody just follows the stream. Let me start by saying this. Most often, I won't say all the time because I don't know all the time, but most often crowds reflect. They're a mirror of how our hearts are a fraud and not real. 
and we go along with the masses and the madness of the crowds more than we go through what is the presence of God doing and what is the reality of God saying? They typically, crowds, reflect us in our hearts more than they reveal who God is. And God knows at the core that in all of his creation, all things were created by him and for him. And in this moment is a revelation of who God is. And the only way God can be revealed is to expose the fraud. God's work has to be done God's way. And oftentimes the way in which we function, what we do reflects far more about what we believe than even what we say. Can I get an amen? The truth is, what we do reflects who we are and our hearts of what we believe far more than what we actually say. So doing God's work God's way is not a minor thing. And oftentimes, what we ultimately want as human beings is we look and we go, things could be done easier. They could be done cheaper. They could be done faster. And God's going, I've actually designed it, that it would be harder, that it would be more expensive, and that it would be slower, so that you would understand it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, by the power of God. So here's something we need to think about in this first section of chapter six, a few things. Don't just go with the flow of the masses. Listen and watch for God's presence. Here's the other thing. It's the theme of this whole message. Be real. The only you that God can change is the real you. There is nothing that will stand in the path of your transformation more than you acting like somebody you aren't presenting to other people, I'm this when in fact you're that. One of the most courageous things in the world we can be as the church and you can be as a follower of God and a follower of Jesus is the real us and the real you. God is passionate about what's real because he's passionate about relationships. There's nothing in the world God is more passionate about than relationships. And relationships cannot be founded on falsehood. They're founded on reality. So as we begin to move, David has this like really interesting transformation. Remember I told you that he took the ark of God and he gave it to this guy. He's like, I'm done with this. And he gives it to Obed-Edom. Well, now he starts hearing, hey, did you know that the house of Obed-Edom has been unbelievably blessed when the Ark of the Covenant, when you hear Ark of the Covenant, don't forget, hear the presence of God. This guy's home and community just started bursting with life. Women who are barren start having kids. We know this from 2 Chronicles. His wife starts having children. And you think about children, like what it reveals. In the Old Testament, it was something substantial. But hear the word life. Where the presence of God is, there's a birthing of life. 
Now that's compelling on so many levels because so many of us in this room, what we're really craving, if you're in this room and you're a student and you came to school up here, you chose a degree, what you're ultimately saying is, I want a good life in the future. Some of you left the heat of the valley to live up here because you wanted a better life that didn't feel like you were living in the pit of hell for <laughs> five months, right? You want life, but then a bunch of you sit at night and you experience anxiety and you experience depression and it feels like death and like a prison and you're going, I want liberation because I want life. Life that's worthy of the word, like capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E, life. So David's looking and he's going, man, life is bursting out in Obed-Edom's home. And in verse 12, you have this notion of when he hears this in chapter 6. It's like, hey, what's there? God promised to me. Not that it can't go many places, but that thing, that's my duty as king. To take the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and place it back into the central life of us, his people, in the nation of Israel. So what compels David to turn from his anger against God and turn into the, this exorbitant, exuberant, was the word I was looking for, exuberant worshiper is the blessing of God that comes from his presence. Just this morning, we heard this phrase before the second song, which is this passage that the Apostle Paul speaks about, and he says, isn't it God's kindness that leads us to repentance? David, in this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 6, has a turning, a moment of repentance of being angry with God and abandoning God. God's presence goes to Obed-Edom because I'm frustrated. And then he hears about the kindness of God, the blessing of God. And this is what repentance is. It's change, yes. But ultimately what repentance is, is this turning. I like to say this a lot, that sin and Jesus, God, are opposite directions. You can't go towards sin and go towards God. Now the only way we in the midst of our sin find God is because God goes to those places. But when the revelation comes to us, we turn, and what made David turn and go back to Obed-Edom, back to the Ark of the Covenant, was the hearing about the bursting of life. The reality of blessing. Did you hear the blessing of God is there? Hear this about the character of God. God woos us in his kindness. God wants to bless us. God is unwilling us for us to live like frauds because lies imprison. Truth brings life. God is always aspiring, always desiring to bring forth life. When Jesus comes on the scene, God came in human form that we might have life. Now, so those of you who know the Bible, finish this for me. That we would have life and have it to the fullest, abundant life. The blessings of God, the compelling nature of God are what turn us. That's always how change happens. Think about a little kid. 
and a little kid is wanting to go somewhere you think is dangerous and you go, no, and you pick them up. That's what God did in this moment of exposing their fraud. No, and you take it away and the kid is furious with you. Faces red, tears, snot coming out of their face, screaming, stomping their feet, slamming their hands down and you're like, that was dangerous and they have no idea. Now, in your humanness, you want to go wha-bam and just smack them across the face. Now, I've learned as a parent, that doesn't work. And a lot of times we think that's what God's doing when in fact he's freeing us and liberating us. But at the moment that they're furious, if you put in front of them this toy, let's make it better, this cake, right? All of a sudden, their face isn't as red, snot's still stuck to their nose, but all of a sudden they get happy and they go at that because it's a new affection. I love this. There's a famous old Puritan who wrote a sermon. The title alone is so powerful. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. So expulsive, think about somebody got expelled from Coconino High School. That means they got kicked out. It's expelled. So the expulsive power, what is the power that can expel from me, drive out of me these desires to continually do things I don't ultimately want to do? Continue to run after substances that I don't really want to run after. Continue to look at things I don't typically want to look at. Continue to act in ways I don't typically want to act. It's the power of a new affection. Something that kicks those things out is something that's better. That's how God works. The blessings of God reveal the presence of God. The presence of God becomes so delightful to us that we go, I got to have it no matter what the cost. So that's what David does. David shapes up everything, begins to treat the Ark of the Covenant the way God said to do it, does God's work, God's way. And now he begins to take the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful place. And as he's going back to the city, he's dancing exuberantly. The presence of God and the blessing of God brings about Freedom. This really interesting freedom. The New Testament testifies to this as well. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now the passage says that David's like not fully clothed. I'm not certain entirely what that means. He's dancing. He's singing. There's this massive celebration that begins to happen and he's worshiping in this incredibly free way. So fraud gets exposed, not just in Uzzah, in David. David in his fear and anger says, God, I want nothing to do with you. The blessing of God, the life-giving nature of God compels David back when he experiences it. He begins to have this unbelievable amount of life that he's showing, he can't contain physically. Unbelievable amount of life an unbelievable amount of freedom. Now, freedom is this really interesting corollary word to life, right? We just went through this whole thing. You want life that's worthy of the word. Capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. And in your definition of life, I guarantee you there's this freedom. I want freedom to really not care what other people think. 
And not in this, like, I don't care what you think, because that's still prison. You're like, well, no, you really do. That's why you're so angry. But this sense of, like, no, I really want the liberation of that. I want the freedom to be content with what I've been given. Remember Sheryl Crow? It's not wanting something I don't get, but wanting what I've already got. Like, Sheryl Crow's going, there's this something about freedom of contentment. There's this freedom David is experiencing this freedom in such a way that when he moves the ark of God back and he's dancing, his wife, who is the daughter of Saul, looks out the window and it says she loathes him in her heart. And here's what you begin to see. Michael's concern, his first wife, daughter of Saul, she's like, the way you're acting is not the way a king acts. Michael, in this very real way, in this passage, is reflecting the madness of the crowds who have, from the very beginning, gone, we want a king like all the other kings. And she's going, you're not acting like all the other kings. They don't dance like this. They don't act foolish like this. She loathes him in her heart, it says, verse 16. Now, David doesn't know what she's viewing behind a window and what she's ultimately thinking deep in her heart, but she's thinking it. Here's what David does. If you look at verse 19, and I love this. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person. In the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. Now, this says a loaf of bread, cake of dates, cake of raisins. There's actually Hebrew translations that says he gave them big bins of wine as well. He's like, listen, there's a party going on. The presence of God is here. Party. Now think about that. That's when we think about life is like this awesome moment with all of our friends and all of our family. The wine is flowing. The dates are there. The cakes are there, right? We're having this incredible amount of fun. The blessing of God is here and he's celebrating all of that. And then he goes home and he walks in to his wife who's already been looking out and she just shames him like crazy. Kings don't do this, you fool. Isn't this what things feel like all the time? Like things go great and then you show up oftentimes at home or in these places of deepest proximity and it's like where you were here, you just get brought way down. But there's something else freedom does that David shows is freedom that's given by the presence of God. Not freedom that you try to conjure from the inside, but freedom that's given by the presence of God has strong legs. And he stands and he lets her do all of this. And he goes, listen to me. Because of the presence of God, what you've thought was undignified, I'll become even more undignified than this. He stands for God and then he begins to speak this truth that I don't know if is right or wrong. But he has this moment and he's like, listen, for whatever reason, God chose to take the kingship away from your father and give it to me. And the truth is where you think all these other people, the nation of Israel, all these women that watched me, when you say I was half-dressed, that you think they're ashamed of me, my prominence will rise amongst them, but the reality is I'm gonna stand here and in your eyes, I may become even more undignified than this but it's based upon the presence of God, the freedom that God provides. God's presence is the point. 
Will you guys just real quick to make sure that I didn't do a terrible job, I'm gonna ask you to recite what I just said. I'm gonna say it, you repeat it back to me. Try to get a little loud. I know you might be getting bored, it's getting to the end. But re repeat this, God's presence is the point. God's presence is the whole point of this passage. Us being fake gets in the way of God's presence. God continues to pour forth the blessing of his presence. God's presence is the point. Here's the other thing. God is not a butler to give us everything we want. He's the Lord of love. He's not just a butler. So these moments where he stands up strong and goes, God's God. Here's what God did. The moment where Uzzah dies, God is not our butler to give us whatever we want. He's the Lord and he's the Lord of love. He's wanting to establish blessing, but he is the Lord. Here's the other thing. God's worth a party. When you get God, when you experience his presence, there's a party inside and you want to throw parties outside. The last thing of this is God is worth standing our ground. Now here's the whole last chapter is David going, I want to do something for God. I want to do something for God. I want to build him a house. I want to build him a house. He tells Nathan the prophet, hey, I want to build God a house. Nathan's like, hey, at this point, whatever you want, do it because God's with you. But then that night, God shows up to Nathan. Now, I don't know if you know this, if you've walked with God enough or intimately enough to know this, but a lot of times we have plans. And some of those times our plans are for God. And our plans for God so often get disrupted you know by who? God. And you know what he ultimately says? He's like, you have this grand plan for me. But you want to know what? That's a stupid plan. So God shows up to Nathan, not to David. Because David went to Nathan going, hey, I have this idea. I want to build God a house. I want to be the first person to build God a house. And God shows up to Nathan and he goes, listen, I've dwelled with my people forever. Did they ever build me a house? And it's this rhetorical question. And then he goes, did I ever ask them to build me a house? No. And ultimately what he was getting at is, have I asked specifically, have I spoken directly to David to ask him to build me a house? No. God's like, at this time and in this season, I'm doing something different. And we're going to see in a minute what he is doing, which this is so amazing and shows the character of God. I'm going to do something different. But tell David the different thing I'm doing is to bless Israel by blessing his family. Whenever God ever, ever, ever blesses anybody, he blesses them to be a blessing. And he goes, David, I'm going to bless you. And honestly, down the line, you'll have a son who's going to build me a house. But it's not going to be you. So Nathan goes back to David and David gets into this prayer that was read at the beginning of the service and he's like, God, you're amazing. And ultimately what he's saying is you care about me. When I said I'm gonna build you a house, God, you basically said I'm good, but my focus, here's God's focus, is your blessing. And what God ultimately tells them in chapter seven is that what the nation of Israel needs right now to be relieved from their enemies and to prosper and have blessing is land. They need a place to inhabit. 
They need to no longer be nomadic people that can turn a corner and the enemy strike them. They need land. So ultimately the reason God tells David no is for David's good. Folks, this is what's so amazing about God is God's no's are always for our good. Always for our good. God disrupts our plans because he loves us. Not because he's a miser and wants to prevent us from getting good things. He goes, no, I want you to have a place of blessing and peace. David speaks, I want this. And Dave, God goes, that's not what you need. God loves us particularly, specifically, in the moment, knowing what we need far better than we do. Knowing what we want deeper than we even know it. That is God's character. So this moment where David kind of is, it's this moment of repentance through a prayer of thanksgiving. Here are the lessons we learn from chapter seven. What we are a part of, hear this, is always bigger than the part we play. David wanted to play a bigger part right now and God goes, no. This thing I'm doing with you is way bigger. It's multi-generational. What we're a part of in this moment, presently, in the past and in the future. What we're a part of is always bigger than the part that we play. Again, here's the next emphasis. God's revelation is always to open up more relationship with him and with each other. Here's the last thing I wanna say and this is gonna lead us into our time of reflection. This series is based upon this statement of Israel saying, we want a king like all the other nations. We want. One of the most powerful questions in Revelation to you and I and to us right now is this question, what do you want? It's one of the most powerful questions I've ever been asked. I went um, in the midst of this really hard 2020, I ended up um, taking a break and I ended up in what, what's called a counseling intensive. And you basically, rather than going like once every two weeks or whatever, it was two straight weeks of five plus hours a day sitting with a guy at a place called Restoring the Soul. And the most powerful thing that happened in that whole moment is him very calmly, not anxiously, going, Tyler, what do you want? And I remember I was so frustrated. I'm like, I don't even know what I want. I can't even identify my desire. But as it went on, there's all these moments. You know, there's these moments in the gospel where Jesus looks at people, even people who are not um, where their bodies want to be, a blind beggar. And he goes, what do you want? And it seems so stupid. What do you think I want? I want to see. But this question of what do you want reveals so much. And you gotta be honest with yourself, what do you want? What Israel wanted, we want a king like all the other nations. And the truth is, if you take this reflection time and let it maybe lead you to a prayer time or to a journal, what is it that you want? And then I tell you, if you wanna go deeper with this, what do you think it is right now our culture ultimately wants? I think there's a lot of similarities. We want a king, I want my kind of king. I just want more money, God. I just want more whatever. What do we want? What do you want? It's an incredible revealer to expose the fraud.
You want to know what God wants? The real you. Even right now, as you come to this reflection point, the only you that God can change is the real you. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that we would be real. I pray that Redemption Flagstaff would be real. I pray that Redemption Church Arizona would be real. God, I pray that every individual in this room would be real. God, you meet us in reality. God, you are. The core of your essence is who and what's real. So God, show yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen.